greater vision will allow you to fully see the business environment around you. That view will help with your shapeholder assessments, the third step in our 7A approach to shapeholder engagement. This involves assessing both the legitimacy of shapeholder claims and the likelihood that those claims will impact your organization. Companies have many demands placed on them by activists and other elements of society. Some of these requests will be based on moral grounds. When considering which standards to apply in assessing these claims, I offer just one case to consider. Siemens paid $1.6 billion in fines for engaging in corruption in 2008. That's $1.6 billion with a B. Siemens was lucky enough to live to fight another day. Not all are as lucky. It is important to note that the payments it made would have been tax-deductible in Germany just a few years earlier. Standards change. You do not want to get passed over for a promotion 20 years from now due to an action you took that met today's standards, but not the standards of 20 years from now. Global efforts and connectivity are increasingly applying higher standards worldwide, whether or not such conduct is accepted in a local culture. That is why I strongly advise applying a global plus 20 year standard to questions of moral legitimacy. Other claims will be based on a preferred policy approach. These too need to be assessed for their legitimacy. One of the challenges you will face is that the role of business and government varies greatly around the world. The scope of government varies widely from place to place. Let's consider a comparison over who pays for the reconstruction of historic buildings in the U.S. and Brazil. I recently visited Independence Hall while in Philadelphia to mentor a research effort at the University of Pennsylvania. This historic building is where the U.S. government began. It is both the building where we declared independence and crafted an enduring constitution. Perhaps no other structure is more central to the foundations of American government. Independence Hall was undergoing historic preservation while I was visiting. Who paid for its restoration? This plaque describing the reconstruction efforts lists the many businesses that contributed to the reconstruction. In America, even though this is one of the most iconic government buildings in the United States, its restoration was not exclusively the role of government. It was also the role of private contributions that were recognized as platinum, gold, or silver level sponsors. Compare this to the restoration of the Catholic Cathedral in Brasilia, Brazil. As a committed Roman Catholic, I felt right at home. In America, it would be unlikely that such an effort could obtain corporate support. Individuals who were attached to that particular religious community would typically fund it. Clearly, many of the biggest contributors received their wealth from a business. It would, however, usually be the individual, not the business, that made the contribution. Yet in Brazil, this reconstruction was funded not only by a company, Petrobras, but one that was majority owned by the government. It is probably not surprising that a country whose president embraces state capitalism promotes more of an active role for government in private affairs than the U.S. Not only does this represent a different view of public versus private role, but also highlights the widely varied views as to government engagement with religion. Shapeholders present a wide range of demands. 
some activist groups actually want to accomplish something, like doubling the protected areas established for pandas in China. Some want to protect their favorite program from the budget acts, or protect the right to lean on their brooms. Others seemingly just want to protest. It is imperative at this stage of the analysis to assess their legitimacy and to do so not only from their own country's view, but those of the local country as well. In addition to determining a claim's legitimacy, you need to evaluate the likelihood that its proponents would prevail in generating enough pressure to force action. David Barron, a professor from Stanford, suggested that one way of predicting the likelihood of shapeholders' success is to consider the benefits and costs that would accrue to the shapeholder seeking action. What benefits do they perceive result from your change of behavior or from an enacting a new law or regulation? How much money could they raise for the effort? What costs would they have to incur to achieve their desired outcome? How much would it take to identify, organize, and motivate a big enough coalition to force change. Companies should assess their own cost-benefit as well. James Q. Wilson identified an additional evaluation metric, which noted that the likelihood of success is elevated if benefits accrue to a concentrated group, instead of being dispersed to a larger population. Let's consider the four possibilities when determining whether the benefits and costs are concentrated or distributed. What Wilson calls client politics are situations where benefits are concentrated and harm is distributed. Those beneficiaries that receive the concentrated benefit seek to be a client of elected officials. They will be their enthusiastic supporters so long as they support continuation or expansion of the policy from which they benefit. An example is corn farmers that receive higher corn prices if the government promotes the production and or consumption of corn-based ethanol. People may pay an imperceptible higher cost at the pump, but corn farmers receive a more direct personal benefit. The likelihood of concentrated group of farmers taking action to preserve the current policy is high. Entrepreneurial politics refers to the fact that you will not achieve an outcome that is concentrated harm, but distributed benefits, unless a political leader chooses to be an entrepreneur or champion in advocating such outcome. Consider how often you have heard President Obama complain about tax benefits that go only to oil and gas companies. The fact that despite his intense focus on this matter, no significant change has occurred reflects the difficulty in overcoming determined resistance to action causing concentrated harm. Interest group politics occurs when those who receive a concentrated benefit battle against those who receive a concentrated harm. An example would be the battle between banks and retailers over whether the government should limit the amount that banks can charge retailers for their use of their debit cards. The outcome depends on which side is deploying a better political strategy. The final category is majoritarian politics. These are situations where there is a distributed benefit and distributed harm, such as occurs with government-sponsored or supported retirement security or health care plans. It is very difficult, short of a financial crisis, to change these policies. A key 
to deciding on how to respond to a challenge or an opportunity from shareholders is to determine both whether they are legitimate and whether they are likely to prevail in pressing their action.